Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 91. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Welcome to the first Intel chat of 2024, and as was the case in 2023, it's another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these Intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, how's it going? Happy New Year to you and to our Intel chat as well. And uh, it, it's great. I'm happy to be back here. Uh, you know, we, we we did take a little bit of time off, which was, I think, necessary. The holidays are always a good time to rest, relax, and reflect and things like that. But uh, nonetheless, it's uh, it's great to be back here, and I'm looking forward to see what this year delivers for us. And I'm already excited because we got some really cool stuff lined up for today. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and as you mentioned, we've been out for a couple of weeks, so there's lots to catch up on. Let's get to it. The first one I got is a few weeks old now, but one I'm very excited to be reporting on. An international group of law enforcement agencies has seized the dark web leak site of the notorious ransomware gang known as Alfie or Black Hat. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you will have heard this name repeatedly. They're certainly not out there doing good things in the world. Through the years, Alfie has compromised the networks of more than a thousand victims globally to earn hundreds of millions of dollars. The gang has targeted U.S. critical infrastructure, including government facilities, emergency services, defense industrial base companies, critical manufacturing, healthcare, and public health facilities, as well as other corporations, schools, and government entities. These guys are no good. <laughs> it makes me extremely happy to see Alfie take one on the chin. This effort has uh, got that big, beautiful seizure notice plastered across the leak site, was spearheaded by the FBI, and involved law enforcement agencies from the United Kingdom, Denmark, Germany, Spain, and Australia. The FBI also released a decryption tool that has already enabled more than 5,000 Alfie ransomware victims to restore their systems. The FBI said it worked with dozens of victims in the United States, saving them from paying ransom demands totaling in the neighborhood of $68 million. Bravo. I definitely think this is a moment worth celebrating, Matt, but as we know, it's very hard to eradicate a group like this, and there's no arrest mentioned in any of the reporting, so I'm not sure if any long-term damage was actually done. Do you think this action is going to impact this group's ability to keep ransoming victims? Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you before I go down my, my normal cynical route, let's just a huge round of applause and, and a bravo for the teams that, that brought this down. I'm just going to say it's not easy to get this amount of international cooperation, uh, sorry, cooperation to take place, but, uh, it's great to see. And I'm really excited to read about this. And I, I was just like you, I was excited to see this article when it came out as well. It's a very nice Christmas gift for a few of us because we've reported on this group multiple times and. It's just been uh, sometimes an absolute nightmare to talk about. But nonetheless, uh, I'm glad to see this effort. And and I hope someone somewhere had a really, really bad holiday season. And if a few guys who typically ruin other people's days had a really bad holiday season, I don't care what the number is. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad they had a bad day, right? That being said, I think you make an interesting point, right? Which is that... What is going to be the impact of all of this? Is ransomware done? Is it going to stop? Absolutely not. Of course not. Um, however, what we've seen are some folks who had a pretty influential space 
in the ransomware industry get taken down. And and Chris, what I think this does is I think it sends that kind of tried and true message of you're not untouchable, right? You may operate from whatever protected area of the world you think you operate from, but not everyone is immune. And even if they can't put you behind bars, for lack of a better term, they can shut down your ability to make money. Now, is ransomware done? No. Are people going to look at this and say, I'm never going to ransom again? No. But it might make them think twice about certain jurisdictions, about certain regions of the world, about certain industries. And it also lets folks know, hey, that thing that you were doing might not be as covert as you think or might not be as, as good as you think. And then here's my favorite part about this as well, this whole operation, Chris, was the release of the decryption tool that had already enabled folks to restore their systems. The government search warrant put the number at 400 victims, but I just I just want to reflect on the technical aspect of that. The FBI released a decryption tool. If you're someone on this ransomware gang who is like, oh, they'll never crack my code. You know, again, I'm speaking very, very general here, but th- they'll never reverse this. You know, uh, you see those ransom messages that are say completely unencryptable, untraceable, so on and so forth and whatnot. It's not. Technology, Chris, we've explored this road multiple times in this podcast. Technology goes both ways. It's a benefit for you. It can also be a benefit for me. Use the exact same way. And I'm, I'm glad to see this happen. I, I don't think there's any security team in the world who read this and was like, oh, goodness, we don't need EDR technology anymore, right? But at the same time, I think there were at least hundreds of victims whose boards, CEOs, security teams, you know, random random number of employees took a breath of fresh air probably for the first time in a long time. And that right there is worth it all alone. But, uh, you know, we'll, we're going to stay vigilant this year. We're going to keep an eye out for when things like this happen. Yeah. And if anything, I imagine the loss of revenue would have hurt them the most. You know, we always talk about how they operate like businesses. And I'm sure that some of that $68 million in ransom they thought was coming down the pipeline was earmarked for operational costs. So hopefully they've run into some operational problems. A hundred percent. You know, I'll tell you, I actually, uh, I, I had this thought when I read through this, I was like, much like folks would map out the sales of an organization, right? These guys might have some sort of a pipeline kind of waiting and whatnot. And then when that money doesn't show up, they've got to make those tough decisions. You know, you only get one Ferrari this Christmas instead of four, right? They've got to make those hard calls. But uh, nonetheless, I, I like seeing that amount of funds disrupted too. And, and as I mentioned, I hope it ruined the the day I hope it ruined the holidays and it's still ruining the day for some folks. We're early January right now. I hope they're still having the world ruined a little bit and you know maybe even getting some doubtful looks from their you know black market friends and things like that who are like, hey man, you told me it was untraceable. Now all of a sudden your website's being shut down. You know and you called this out and maybe I'll finish on this little piece right here. This website has been seized. That's a fantastic banner to see across when you're on the right side of things. So again, bravo and hats off to the team who put this together. And it was not an easy task. I know what goes into these types of cooperative efforts. It's not easy. It's uh, a lot of times very stressful. Uh, and I will say for the for folks who who maybe can think about this, but don't want to say it out loud, there's definitely points in time where that operation was doing what they were doing and they're watching victims get caught. They're watching people fall down to this ransomware, to these attacks in the background. And there's a very covert, you know, hey, we can help you, but it's got to be very private. And there's a little bit of a cat and mouse game. How much do you tease out to the bad guys that you know 
what they're doing or what they're up to or that you can decrypt that data before you launch a giant operation like this. Because let's be clear, it doesn't come together overnight. So the amount of effort that goes into it is worth an applause itself. The fact that they ruined the, the day for the, some bad guys made it even better. All right. In March 2023, security researchers at IBM Security Trusteer uncovered a new malware campaign using JavaScript web injections. This new campaign is widespread and particularly evasive with historical indicators of compromise suggesting a possible connection to Danabot, although that confirmation can't be made definitively. Since the beginning of 2023, researchers have seen over 50,000 infected user sessions where these injections were used by attackers, indicating the scale of threat activity across more than 40 banks that were affected by this malware campaign and locations across North America, South America, Europe, and Japan. Apparently, threat actors purchased malicious domains in December 2022 and began executing their campaign shortly after. The JS script is targeting a specific page structure common across multiple banks, the script checks for a certain keyword in the request, along with a specific button ID, and if both are present, injects some malicious content. Credential theft is executed by adding event listeners to this button with an option to steal a one-time password token with it. This web injection doesn't target banks with different login pages, but it does send data about the infected machine to the server and can easily be modified to target other banks. The linked blog article has a great technical breakdown with lots of info that can be used to build defenses. Matt, if I'm remembering a conversation we had a while ago correctly, this kind of attack was quite common at some point. Yeah, Chris, this is one of those things where adversaries are kind of utilizing infrastructures from a software perspective against the organizations themselves. You know, at a very, very, very high level, this is JavaScript web injection. This is manipulation of code that typically serves up content in order to serve up malicious content or to take a piece of malicious content and tag it onto the end and have it do something bad in the meantime, which is obviously what we've seen in this case. You know, tons, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of infected user sessions here, which is a really, really big number when you consider the amount of data and the type of data that's likely traversing these sessions as well, which which is a really big deal. Um, but I think what we've seen over the past, Chris, and I know we have talked about this before, but where we see this show up is in various different types of approaches um, from like malicious injection code. You know, we've seen kind of those drive-bys. We've seen those fake browser updates. Uh, we've seen, you know, this one's targeting financial organizations or financial websites. And I think it's just something that we just continue to see from a threat actor perspective when they find a way that they can intercept or inject themselves, pun intended, into the overall code rendering process that they're going to do so, you know? Um, and I think it, it's an interesting opportunity for them because as the article goes through and mentions, right, there are certain things that uh, it, it, it has built in, which shows you that adversaries have started to figure out how these types of services are done. So if I quote from the article here, uh, the script can't find the sorry for example if the collect token flag is on but the script can't find the 2fa token input field it just stops the run and there's logic built in which basically is telling me if i'm reading through this correctly the adversaries are like if i only get 70 percent of the data it's worthless to me so i don't even want it right whereas before i feel like sometimes these scripts are written with like a catch-all attitude like eh, i'll get i'll get 100 percent of it but i might be able to use 20 percent of it so whatever it's worth it whereas here they're building in certain mechanisms to prevent collecting essentially data they can't use to me it shows a little bit of evolution from the threat actor and and just is more reason for us to be vigilant about kind of what's happening inside of these sessions and where there may be weaknesses for adversaries to take advantage of 
Okay, and is there a way to like uh, build a detection for this kind of thing if it's all happening in the browser like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because remember, anything that's going to happen in the browser is going to traverse network in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I know before anyone gets into it, someone's going to be like, but Matt, what about encrypted traffic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yep, you're right. There's ways to inspect that. I'm not saying it's the right or the wrong thing to do. I'm just saying it's possible. Um, There are obviously ways to go through that, number one. Number two, the final content that gets rendered from a web page perspective, the final content that gets rendered inside of someone's browser is something that is observable to the organization at certain layers. So it may not be network monitoring, but, uh, you know, Chris, I, w- without naming any vendor, I know there's some folks out there who do things like browser isolation. Uh, they do kind of like host-based browser activity inspection and things like that. At that level where you've got almost complete visibility of the rendered page, without needing to deal with encrypted packets and stuff like that, there's an opportunity to say, wait a second, there's some functions here that don't make sense. You know, I would, however, though, maybe go another way and, or not another way, but I would point the other side of this out, which is for, for a lot of technologies out there, if they don't know it's bad, they might not have a reason to flag on it. Cause if we zoom out far enough, this is a, a financial or a banking website that has JavaScript in it. It's not really, you know what I mean? Like, unless you know what you are or aren't looking for, that may not be enough of an indicator to say, well, this is clearly bad. I would think, and I'm looking at a screenshot here of, of kind of one of the scripts that they call out. When you look at the different types of information that's been sent out, you know, then you can start to get into some things like, wait a second, how come when I click the login button, two functions kick off or there's a listener happening or whatever, you know, whatever's going on here. Like that's the way to go down and track this kind of stuff is to look at the way the data flows through the, the, you know, kind of the web browser process itself. Interesting. All right. This, uh, this one is one that's come back to us back in June, 2023. We covered a report from Kaspersky that they had identified some previously unknown iOS malware within their own network, something they called operation triangulation. After identifying the infected iOS devices, they cloned them and used Mobile Verification's toolkit to break down the attack chain. The attack does not require any user interaction and after several steps installs a full-featured APT platform. The malicious toolset does not support persistence, but phones are easily reinfected after being power cycled. Fast forward to the end of December and Kaspersky published some new research in which they've identified a vulnerability in Apple's system on a chip or SOC that has played a critical role in the attacks they saw in Operation Triangulation. The discovered vulnerability is a hardware feature, possibly based on the principle of security through obscurity, and may have been intended for testing or debugging. Following the initial zero-click iMessage attack and subsequent privilege escalation, the attackers leveraged this hardware feature to bypass hardware-based security protections and manipulate the contents of protected memory regions. This step was crucial for obtaining full control over the device. Apple has since addressed the issue, identified as CVE-2023-38606. To fully unwind this, the researchers had to engage in extensive reverse engineering and meticulously analyze the iPhone's hardware and software integration with a particular focus on memory-mapped I.O. or MMIO addresses. This is most certainly not a run-of-the-mill exploit, and I'd venture to guess the work of a nation-state-backed threat actor or APT. What do you think of this one, Matt? Is this proof that there's nothing we can do to protect ourselves against the well-funded APT? Uh, Chris, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would slightly contend 
and say, we know about it. So there are things we can do to protect ourselves. However, the, what you're hitting is a hundred percent right, which is we know about it only because it happened to someone somewhere, right? We didn't catch it early on. It was one of those things that existed for a while. And I remember talking about this one, uh, earlier in, in 2023 as well. I should just say last year, cause uh, it is no longer 2023. Um, but that said, you know, I, I think for me, this type of attack or, or this this exploit, this this you know overall, let's just call it overall thing for the sake of discussion here, uh, is is proof that all it takes is a little bit of patience and some time and some engineering and funds help because they allow to dedicate those resources. But having those different things lined up is uh, without a doubt, you know, the, the the ticket here to kind of unfolding and going through this, right? You said so yourself, uh, you know, had the re- researchers had to engage in very extensive reverse engineering and meticulously analyzing iPhones. I mean, this is this is not light work, folks. You know what I mean? This is not just hopping into chat GPT and being like, hey, chat GPT, give me a quick dump of uh, MMIO addresses and I'll just learn it really quick. Right. And this isn't the matrix where you can just plug in and you know it. This is very, very advanced work. And I think this is a combination of time, money resources of all of all types and then brains as well to be very clear the people who figured this out are very intelligent and that's just the way that it is and again we're not giving compliments to threat actors because we don't do that here but the person who went through or the people who went through and figured this out they were they were very intelligent and they went through and they figured it out they got there that's what i think this is evidence of chris is that persistence is always going to be encapsulated of those things and with enough time they they will always succeed and to me, that's kind of the back end true nature of an APT. So I would I would think that your question kind of comes full circle in my answer there, which is you're right, well-funded, persistent APTs who have time, who understand the long game, right? They will find some level of success in various operations in the future. And that's just that's just the way it's going to be. What we can do on our side, though, as defenders, right? And and let's be clear. This isn't really a a defense mechanism, meaning there wasn't some giant gaping hole somewhere that everyone just left open and unpatched. You know, I, I kind of look at this from a technical perspective of anything can be reverse engineered again with enough time, with enough resources. These guys got there. And I think from a defense perspective, this is an opportunity for us to say, okay, I know this might happen, right? This is a little bit more about the the when, not the if in the future. I'm going to go ahead and prepare myself as best as I can for these different stages. So patch management, device management, rollouts, so on and so forth. All of those are going to be things that I'm going to prioritize in response to these things. Because as you said, Chris, right, there's always going to be an opportunity for adversaries to gain a little bit of traction and a little bit of success. And what I want to do is if I can't prevent it, I want to minimize just how much percentage bar they're able to move. And this is an example of quick reaction can minimize that a lot. But, you know, I've kind of boiled a lot of these cases down to if someone, you know, I think we may have talked about this before as well. In fact, I know we've talked about this when an attack comes out and it feels very academic, which means it's likely, you know, a group of college students on solving a thesis or something sat down and they spent all the time in the world reverse engineering a thing. And then they get a couple of vulnerabilities attached to their thesis paper and boom, they've you know they've graduated and they've done, but it's, it's an academic approach. Chris, if you and I just paid those guys a little bit of money, right? <laughs> we could turn them really quickly. So I think, you know, the idea and the nature of wanting to reverse engineer technology is never going to go away. 
what we need to do is just find ways to make sure that the end product of that curiosity is beneficial rather than detrimental to others. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, this attack was so interesting for me because I, I feel like the only reason it got caught, it was because they were inside a Kaspersky's network who has, you know, some pretty advanced detection mechanisms. And if you even read about the initial infection, it like they called it triangulation because it was hard for them to figure out what was going on. So, you know, without those kind of minds and eyes and resources trying to unwind this stuff, you know, it's probably very hard to detect in the normal world. Yeah, exactly. And that's the goal, right? That's the adversary's goal is to make it hard to detect. So a hats off to the folks. And we're lucky that a lot of the folks at Kaspersky are on our side. I shouldn't say a lot. All the folks at Kaspersky are on our side, primarily because, you know, they did. And th this is a one for one match. The amount of curiosity that went into reverse engineering this and developing this malware is an is equally met by the amount of curiosity that went through and discovered this and unveiled it. And that's the type of thing we need is we need those curiosity levels to either match or to be greater on the defensive side. And we're going to continue to see success in, in, in the large part there. All right. Uh, next up, we have quite an interesting one from Bleeping Computer. Dare I say a fun one? I'm, I'm still not sure. Over the holidays, the NPM package registry was flooded with more than 3,000 packages, including one called everything and others named as variations of the word. The everything package only contains five sub packages, which gradually pull in every single package present on the entire registry as a dependency. Each of these sub packages or chunks, as the author calls them, include about 800 NPM projects as their dependency. Running the command NPM install everything will start resolving what's referred to as transitive dependencies and end up downloading millions and millions of packages, potentially consuming all of the memory on the given computer. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Since these 3,000 plus packages managed to include every single NPM package on the npmjs.com registry as their dependency, NPM package authors who have ever published to the NPM registry are now unable to remove their packages at will because of NPM's policy. You heard that correctly. This package's mere existence on npmjs.com prevents authors unrelated to this package whatsoever from unpublishing their package from the world's largest JavaScript software registry. The author of the package has apologized for the prank and is working with NPM admins to remedy the issue. Matt, as I mentioned earlier, I have mixed feelings about this one. On the one hand, it feels kind of nostalgic in that it is mischievously exposing a design flaw, kind of like hackers of old and, and they operated kind of like hackers of old that operated without financial gain as a goal. On the other hand, this probably caused a few people real problems and I'm sure it's going to be a pain for the folks at NPM to unwind and probably prevented some authors from removing their stuff and who knows what some of those knock-on effects will end up being. Is this cute or most certainly something we can do without in this day and age? Huh. Here we go again, right? Human curiosity, just to see. <laughs> Human curiosity, what happens if I do a thing? Oh, let me just, you know, this is the, the cat that pushes over their the uh, the really expensive object, right? Or the the, the I, I shouldn't say cat. I should say the kid who touches the stove, right? What just happens if I if I if I uh, or, and, or and look how case, smart I am, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I I was a little torn on this one too. The moment I first read about it, I actually thought about um, where. So I I kind of actually related this to in Sigma rules. Uh, hats off to the folks out there who know and utilize Sigmas for Sigma rules for for you know malicious activity detection and things like that. But in Sigma, there's a way to essentially uh, have a bunch of different objects or a list of objects and then say in a matching parameter, say all of them, 
right? And it's very shorthand. It's literally all of them. It's not like, you know, dollar sign friends are or all or anything like that. It's literally just the words, all of them. And I kind of equated this to this in my head when I first read it, where it was like, what package do you want to import? Import everything. And it was one of those Hollywood, like, you know, uh, everyone kind of things. But uh, at the same time, it also turned out to be a real big headache for folks. I am glad to see that it was identified as a prank and that folks have quickly been working on getting that resolved and whatnot. However, this is one of those things where, you know, the way that the architecture is set up for these types of, you know, NPM in particular, but the way that the architecture is set up for a lot of these package management tools works great until one little domino falls somewhere and then it's a massive thing to unravel and whatnot. So, I would think the outcome from this would be, are there different ways we could architect this? Are there different, you know, parameters or kind of things that we should drop in? Um, you know, I, I, Chris, I, I know you've, you've done some scripting yourself, uh, just a little bit here or there. I'm kidding. Um, uh, but myself as well, just a little bit here or there, but I know you, you know, as well as I do in certain languages, there's variable names that you can't use. There's things that are, that are restricted from using and the program won't even run. You know, and I think this may be an opportunity from an NPM perspective as well to say, hey, let's let's allocate or block off certain keywords or let's allocate or block off certain things to prevent this type of stuff happening in the future. Um, and then you can just put hard no's in a lot of your logic there, N-O, no's in your logic there, and, and you can kind of block those things down. But that being said, uh, you know, I, I think this might be a lesson in how nimble some of this architecture can be and also how how kind of unfortunately how quickly it can fall if someone does something a little mischievous like this but i'm just happy at the end of the day to see that it was done from a humorous perspective as a prank not from a malicious i'm going to ruin everyone's day perspective yeah and i think you make a great point there you know this example along with some of the sort of registry poisoning stuff that we see you know there seems to be a lot of flaws in the registry architecture that could probably be rethought to make them more secure. We definitely appreciate the level of effort that everyone's having to put into this now as well. So uh, nonetheless, uh, hats off to folks who have to figure this problem out. Can't wait to see what they come up with. All right. This last one today is coming to us from Reuters. They're reporting that Russian hackers were inside the Ukrainian telecom giant Kyivstar's system from at least May last year. The hack, one of the most dramatic since Russia's full-scale invasion nearly two years ago, knocked out services provided by Ukraine's biggest telecom operator for some 24 million users for days starting on December 12th. The attack on Kyivstar, which has more than half of Ukraine's population as mobile subscribers, knocked out services, damaged IT infrastructure, and put millions of people in danger of not receiving alerts of potential Russian air assaults. It even disrupted the air raid alert systems themselves in parts of Kyiv. In an interview, Ilya Vityuk, head of the security service of Ukraine's cybersecurity department, disclosed the exclusive details about the hack, which he said caused disastrous destruction. Quote, the attack wiped almost everything, including thousands of virtual servers and PCs. He went on to describe it as probably the first example of a destructive cyber attack that completely destroyed the core of a telecom operator. Investigating the attack has been difficult because of the wiping of Kyivstar's infrastructure, but Vichik said he was pretty sure it was carried out by Sandworm, a Russian military intelligence cyber warfare unit that has been linked to cyber attacks in Ukraine and elsewhere. We covered Sandworm in depth on this show in our two-part Hacker History episode, When the Lights Went Out in Ukraine, which I will link in the show notes. Matt, reading about these kinds of attacks are what keep me up at night. Cyber is a major component of modern warfare, 
and I can't imagine in North America we are much better prepared than in Europe, are some of the legislative changes that appear to be coming going to help us be more resilient to attacks like this, or is it simply too big and too complicated to protect everything in the foreseeable future? Yeah, Chris, this is uh, unfortunately a bit of a somber one that came through only because the one that caught me the most. Now, I, I read this and, and I have to be very frank and say I wasn't surprised and I don't mean anyone offense by any of that. But to hear that Russia's hacking Ukraine shouldn't surprise anyone, given what's going on in the world and whatnot. The part where there was a potential of kind of, you know, disrupting or perhaps even eliminating kind of the air raid warnings and things like that, uh, disrupting the air of uh, the alert systems and stuff like that, which was probably the ultimate goal, or at least one of the you know primary goals, if you will, was was one of the most disheartening things to read because again, everyone's allowed to have their own stance on what's happening over there. I'll just say that if human beings aren't able to be warned about imminent danger, regardless of choices, I don't I don't like that at all, especially when someone's intentionally pushing the button to say no for that. I, I, I think you ask a really good point, though, about upcoming legislative changes. I, I know with respect to the United States, there are some cybersecurity is obviously a very big focus and how cybersecurity and critical infrastructure is handled and dealt with is is definitely under lots of review and lots of discussion. And I think we'll probably see some changes hopefully come sooner than later about this. Attacks like this tend to accelerate and amplify some of the issues that are out there. So I expect that we might see some movement in a defensive perspective after this. However, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, you know, if they were already in there, where else could they possibly be at? So now becomes the game of what type of telephone system were they using? What or telecom, I should say, what what, what systems were the telecoms using? Where else are those systems being used? Was there extensive, you know, connections into other networks, other nations? Was it iso? Was it, you know, isolated? It, it becomes a massive unfurling of what happened there. Because Chris, let's be clear: the more specific or the more critical you get in an infrastructure, the smaller the field of vendors grows. You know, this isn't like if I want to go buy a smart camera, I go to. 15 different stores or or Amazon or wherever, and I have thousands of choices, which may or may not come from the same manufacturer. I don't know, but I've got a lot of options out there, right? Hey, I need to prop up a telecom system for built, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Eh, it's not that big of a market. <laughs> There's three to, switches. To the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's not that big of a market where you can go back and say, well, I have my choice of 50 different vendors or whatever it is, right? So now it becomes kind of an understanding of just how far widespread that attack may have got. I hope it will spurn changes. My heart goes out to the folks who have been impacted by this. I, I really hope that at some point in the future, someone doesn't find evidence that a alert was supposed to go out of an air raid and it never did. And therefore, you know, thousands of people were murdered or something like that. Like, I, I hope that has never come of it. But uh, that being said, this is the types of things where, you know, and it does say in the article, right, the attack was not accompanied by a major missile or drone strike at a time when people were having communication difficulties. But if that sentence was positive rather than negative, I should say it's a positive sentence about a negative thing. But if that was a negative sentence about a negative thing, we would be having a very different discussion right now. Yeah. Yeah, especially given its civilian population that it probably affected the most. I can't imagine the military's communications were run on a public infrastructure. We'd hope not, right? We'd hope not. But uh, who knows? We might be talking about that in a future episode too. All right, Matt. Well, 
Good start to 2024. Thanks again for showing up and sharing your expertise. I really enjoy these conversations. And for those folks that are listening, again, if you're not on the Lima Charlie Slack channel and want to be in these conversations early and get the information real time, you can sign up at slack.limacharlie.io. We'd love to have you. There's always good conversations going on over there and we're growing all the time. Awesome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to get this year started. I'm excited for the next 50 weeks or so of Intel Chats to see exactly what's going on out there in the world. But I'll echo that sentiment for those of you out there who want to join us live for the chats. Jump into the Lima Charlie Slack. We'd love to have you there. All right. Take care, sir. See ya. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.